Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books and Religion, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rob Heaton, one of your hosts for our Biblical Studies sub-channel, where I focus especially on new and exciting scholarship in New Testament and early Christian studies. Today, we'll be talking to Lee Martin McDonald about his book, which I'll introduce in a second. But first, let me tell you about the guest. Dr. McDonald received his PhD in 1976 from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and has studied, lectured, taught, and served as visiting professor at prominent schools all over the globe at St. Andrews in Scotland, uh, the University of Athens in Greece, the Pontifical University in Rome, Houston Christian University, Princeton Theological Seminary, Acadia Divinity College in Nova Scotia, and much more. He is the past president of the Institute for Biblical Research, um, a confessional evangelical body of scholars who work on both testaments of the Christian Bible. He has written or edited some 35 books and more than 160 articles and essays since the late 1970s. Uh, covering all kinds of issues related to Jesus scholarship, the origin of the biblical canon, and just about everything in between. His books are used in graduate schools at uh, Harvard, Notre Dame, Duke, Emory, and numerous other institutions, including my own PhD program at the University of Denver. Uh, McDonald is also an ordained minister in the Baptist tradition, and his work, in my experience at least, is a testament to uh, the fact that uh, one can maintain traditional Christian beliefs without clinging to uh, theological positions that are unsupported by the evidence. On top of all this, uh, Lee is joining us today from his home in California to discuss the publication of his most recent book, which is called Before There Was a Bible, uh, and the subtitle is Authorities in Early Christianity, and this was published uh, this year, 2023, with Bloomsbury T&T Clark. Lee, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network. Thank you. It's great to be with you today, and I look forward to what we will unfold here in a few moments. Yes. Uh, so, Lee, as you hear me uh, recite those uh, pieces of your CV, is there anything that you look back on most fondly for having accomplished thus far? Well, I feel very privileged to have had opportunities to uh, read and to study many of the giants in the field that came before me, and all of us build on the backs of those who preceded us. And uh, they stimulate us and get us to think, and sometimes we think outside of their boxes. And I've had the privilege of meeting with a number of the giants in the field, and I am greatly privileged. So it's always an honor, and I always want to give them credit for uh, stimulating my thinking in this whole field. Absolutely. That's what we do. Uh, uh, as you say, uh, build on the foundations that of those who have come before us. And every once in a while, we carry the ball forward a little bit. And uh, I think you have certainly done that. Um, as I mentioned uh, in the uh, intro at the top, uh, your most recent book from TNT Clark is called Before There Was a Bible, uh, Authorities in Early Christianity. Um, having reviewed the book myself, I can see how well it fits with your previous scholarship on the biblical canon. Um, uh, Lee uh, uh, published a major two-volume work, perhaps his magnum opus, 
uh, in 2017 on the Old and New Testament. But uh, I can see also how it proceeds from all the knowledge that you've cultivated over the decades, showing that the Bible doesn't quite take shape until, as we know it until the 4th century at the earliest. Uh, Lee, is this a fair reading of the situation that you wish to uh, write a book uh, highlighting the sources of authority that existed in the period before there was a Bible to speak of? Oh, I think that's fair. Yeah, thank you. The, uh, I should note that a part of what prompted me to do what I did was a lot of popular thinking about the uh, authors uh, of the New Testament and uh, the Old Testament, that they were all fully aware that they were writing sacred scripture when they wrote. That's a popular notion that I have tried to debunk because I don't think it's true. If the writers of the New Testament, for example, thought they were writing scripture when they wrote, you'd think they would have said it at least one time, but there's not one time in the New Testament that they do that. So I've tried to focus on that, and then I wanted to focus on the question of authority, because so much attention in churches have been focused on the Bible. The Bible is the final authority and all matters of faith and practice. So I say, what did the church do before there was a Bible? The bottom line is the final authority to the church was always Jesus. Uh, he was the Lord of the church. Not everybody used that term Lord initially, but eventually the vast majority of Christians acknowledged Jesus as Lord. They found great authority in the reading of the Jewish scriptures among them, uh, it wasn't fully complete at the time, but also the apostolic authority that transmitted uh, to the early churches uh, what they believed Jesus taught them. And that was transmitted, and eventually they wrote what they wrote, and those writings, gospels, epistles, and so on, uh, were read in churches. They weren't called scripture initially, but uh, they were recognized as having a functional authority and the life of the early churches, because they answered the questions. Who was Jesus? What did he say? What did he teach? What did he do? And uh, how do we pro deal with problems in the churches? Like the writings of Paul were very helpful that way. They're always, uh, writings in the Bible always function like Scripture before they're called Scripture. And uh, eventually, once they're called Scripture, that doesn't mean we have a biblical canon of a close collection. That took centuries to develop. Right. And I'm in agreement with you on that uh, matter, especially. Um, I have a question that uh, came to my mind as you were speaking. You talk about, um, you know, the position of the Bible in churches today and uh, how most people who walk into churches are usually bringing Bibles with them. They have their own copy. They can read their own copy. They know the con they know what the contents are. If they even if they haven't perhaps read the whole thing, they know what the contents are. I'm curious if you could um, uh, characterize what the scriptural situation is like in the early centuries for Christians. Um, are individuals possessing uh, uh, biblical books? Um, what is the what is this period like for Christians uh, scripturally? Do they even know a full extent of uh, those uh, writings that exist in uh, early Christianity? Well, thank you for the question. Uh, that's often assumed by people that everybody knew what was Scripture at that time. The fact is they didn't. We have no evidence that they did. Uh, they started with Jesus and then the writings that were circulating among them that they received from their Jewish uh, uh, siblings uh, 
And uh, those quite often were like the Torah and uh, or the Pentateuch and also some of the prophets, but we don't know the full extent of the collection of writings that they considered scripture because nobody in the first and second century was talking about a collection, a fixed collection of sacred writings. But they found the writings that spoke to their uh, circumstances and that advanced the message that they believed Jesus wanted them to advance. And those were the writings that were circulating in the churches. Uh, we often want to think that everybody in the first century was talking like we are. We have no evidence that any church had all of the books of the New Testament well until the fourth century uh, AD. And that would be very few because most churches couldn't afford to have them uh, copied. That was a very expensive process. So there were a few what we call Pandek Bibles, all of the books of the Bible that it was believed were there. And you've no doubt seen Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. But those were rare and very few people would have had access to them. What they had access to were the copies of scriptures that were available and they would have been very few and far between and quite often not even whole books, but they made copies and uh, you'll uh, no doubt want to say something about the lectionaries. And initially, they had copies of text that really spoke to their needs. And uh, nobody said, this is scripture. They just said, uh, uh, this is what Jesus said, or this is what Paul, who was an apostle, said, or the apostles uh, said these things. And those were what were, uh, things that were circulating. There's no doubt that uh, a church, uh, let's say Philippi, said uh, to the church at Corinth, hey, we understand Paul wrote a letter to you folks. Could we get a copy of that? We're going to send uh, Bolivar down to see if he can make a copy of it. And uh, by the way, Paul wrote a very nice letter to us. Would you like to get a copy? And I mean, it's circulated like that. We have no evidence that all churches had all of Paul's letters or all of the gospels for centuries, up in the third, fourth century. And it was rare even then up until the ninth century uh, to the 10th century for one church to have all of those books in one setting and that would have been very wealthy uh, church because uh, it was very expensive to make the copies. So it sounds like it's the case that the churches made use of what they had and uh, compared to the Holy Bible bound in a volume uh, nicely that we have today, it would have been uh, very small. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the uh, uh, publication of the printing press, the invention of the printing press made available multiple copies so that churches could for the first time have a copy of the scriptures uh, in their midst. And uh, even then, initially, it was a very expensive thing. So if a church, let's say in the 1500s, uh, had a copy of their scriptures, there would have been one copy probably owned by one person uh, or owned by the church and that the church uh, did everything they could to be able to afford it. By the uh, 13th, 14th century, you saw some of that coming out with what's called the Paris Bibles, but I'll say something about that later. But nowadays you can buy a Bible for $5, or if you go to a church, they'll give you one. But that's that's a rare treat uh, in antiquity. Very good. Okay, so uh, Lee, given that uh, 
your current book, Before There Was a Bible, stems from your previous scholarship on the biblical canon. I'd like to sort of close that loop and focus for a few questions in uh, part one of this interview. Um, in basic terms, uh, your perspective on the formation of the biblical canon. Uh, we can talk about the essential evidence for the late arrival of the Old and New Testaments as we know them today. Uh, our listeners in the New Books and Religion Network often have some background or even expertise in some cases in biblical studies, but not always. Uh, so hopefully this will center us on some uh, common ground. Then for part two, we'll transition to your most recent book and its discussion of uh, the different sources of authority, like you said, beginning with uh, the Lordship of Jesus. Uh, so I'll start by asking this, Lee. Uh, how did you first become interested in investigating the development of the biblical canon? When did this happen? How was it triggered? Who in scholarship inspired you? And what do you remember about this whole impetus for you professionally to go in this direction? All right. Do you have three hours? No, you don't. But let me just no. The uh, uh, interestingly, I was uh, interested in the books of the Bible. Uh, back when I was in seminary, back in the 1960s. And uh, I was told to avoid all of the books that weren't in our Bible and the Septuagint. I wanted to write a thesis in my first master's degree on uh, the Septuagint because the New Testament writers, I kept saying, gee, most of the quotes from the New Testament are from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But my professor said, oh, don't waste your time on that. That is a useless subject to pursue. But I kept thinking, there's a number of questions. Uh, they kept telling me the only Old Testament that we had was the Hebrew Bible. And I said, wow, but it's so different uh, from what we have in the quotation. So that's what got me started thinking. And then uh, when I was teaching New Testament studies, generally what people did in those days, they'd give a five minute summary of how we got our Bible. And it was generally somebody, somebody else's summary that was generally uninformed. And I had some very nice professors who just didn't know anything about the subject. They taught me stuff. And there was uh, a time when I was teaching a midweek Bible study in a, in a church in Nebraska. And a young man came home from college and he had just taken a course in religion. And uh, he was told that there were a lot of books that didn't make it into the Bible. And he said, why did these books make it in and uh, and uh, the others get excluded. And as I was trying to summarize and tell him, everything that I was saying to him, I kept thinking of exceptions to. And I said, can I get back to you next week on this? Well, that was 40 plus years ago. But, uh, but having said that, uh, I began to do some study on my own. And I went to Harvard University and uh, Helmut Kester was my uh, professor there said, Lee, let's, why don't you work on this? Let me give you a focus and let's talk about the criteria that were used to select the books of the Bible. So I wrote a term paper and he liked it. We expanded it. It eventually became a thesis. It eventually got published. And uh, so I, I've spent over 40 plus years looking at the various related things. It's a big subject related to canon. 
Right. And uh, you mentioned rightly the uh, giants that came before you, like uh, Helmut Kester that you studied under. I asked this question partially because you, uh, uh, Dr. McDonald, were among the uh, inspirations for my interest in the uh, uh, discipline of canon studies, uh, given how often the Shepherd of Hermas pops up in your writing as one of these books that are on the canonical boundary. I think you call it in this book uh, uh, temporarily scriptural at one point. Um, but I suppose uh, based on our discussion of the idea that there are scriptures that are not included in the canon, I suppose it would be proper to offer definitions and clarifications of terms that we're using here for the listeners. You refer uh, frequently to scripture or calling a certain book scriptural, Bible with a capital B, or biblical with a lowercase b, uh, canon or canonical, and now you have introduced authorities in early Christianity. How are these different words related, I wonder? And uh, can you give an example of how you differentiate Bible, Scripture, and canon? Sure. Uh, the notion of Scripture was uh, uh, inherited by the Christians from the Jews, their Jewish siblings. And that was sacred writings, and those sacred writings were deemed to have authority in them because it was believed that they were stimulated by or given to the prophet by God. Uh, God originated this particular message. And so uh, as Jews, who uh, the earliest Christians were all Jews, including Jesus, uh, those are the kinds of texts that uh, they looked upon. Uh, the term Bible is a much later term uh, that is a compilation now. We say the Bible is the collection of the church's scriptures. The term Bible itself is uh, the uh, feminine form of Biblos, uh, Biblia, and uh, simply means books. And the uh, Holy Bible was uh, holy books. That's what it translates into. And uh, that term became common at about the ninth century, but it wasn't as popular as what it is today until after the uh, uh, Paris Bibles that they called them. They were Latin translations of the Church of Scriptures at about the 12th, 13th century AD. So those kinds of terms were there uh, in antiquity. No one initially called uh, anything, any scriptures, canon. The word canon simply means a rule or authority. Uh, canon is uh, a guideline uh, to follow. And there were all kinds of canons in antiquity, whether in art, architecture, philosophy, you name it, grammar. Uh, you didn't violate those rules or the guidelines to follow. The earliest use of the term canon in the church was the canon of faith. And it was the faith beliefs that were circulating in the churches. And so in the second century, they began to speak of the canon of faith. That was the core beliefs that were found in early Christian uh, follow, uh, the early followers of Jesus. Uh, did they all say the same thing? No, not at all. And the identity of Jesus was a continual problem for several centuries. The majority of churches eventually uh, accepted the identity of Jesus in the threefold Trinitarian categories only in the fourth century at the Council of Trent. I'm sorry, Nicaea. And uh, those those kinds of things were not prevalent in the first century or the second century at all. No one was talking about a fixed collection of New Testament writings. And you might uh, want to bring up Muratorian fragment that everybody wants, uh, so many people want to put in the second century. But uh, I've said if it was a second century document, late second century is where most put it, uh, uh, 
It has absolutely no parallels until the end of the fourth century, early fifth century uh, in the church. So no one was talking about uh, a canon of scripture, a collection of authoritative ruling scriptures. And when they began to do that, they didn't all agree. Uh, the various lists that you see coming out, most of the canon lists come out in the fourth and fifth and sixth century, some even later. And those uh, do not agree with one another, uh, which books. And for centuries, the Eastern churches wouldn't accept what's called the minor or even Pocock epistles. Uh, that is the uh, uh, second Peter, second, third John, Jude, and uh, also Revelation is the only the closest book to claim that it was a revelation from God. The book itself was the most disputed book in the history of the church. And the Eastern churches took seven centuries before they would welcome it in their New Testament. But even to this day, they never read it in their liturgies or their worship. And that's true in uh, the Eastern Orthodox, the Oriental Orthodox, and the Russian Orthodox. None of them read it in their worship services. So that took quite some period of time. But I may have strayed from your question, but... Uh, yeah. Okay. You mentioned the Muratorian fragment, and that's a whole uh, 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 hot potato in scholarship, if if you will. Uh, like you said, sometimes, or I guess uh, in previous generations, has been mostly assigned to the end of the second century. Other people have put it to the third century. Other people have put it to the fourth century, and maybe even to the early fifth. So, uh, where we locate the Muratorian fragment is a, um, a period uh, or a subject of major debate. Um, as you said, uh, the term canon is initially used for a canon of faith or a canon of truth, and we find this in Irenaeus. But as you also say, um, Irenaeus uh, defines that canon of faith in different ways at different times in his in his writings. Sometimes it's very closely aligned to you know the prologue of the Gospel of John. At other at other times, it sounds a little bit more uh, synoptic to my ears. However, this term canon becomes used in sort of a technical sense for the first time by Athanasius in the fourth century. Can you say anything about uh, his use of the term canon? And does that transform it from, uh, you know, the way that it is used in prior centuries? Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, actually, there's one text in origin that uh, uses a form of the word canonizing, uh, uh, the Greek word canon, but uh, Athanasius in the fourth century, the 367, uh, his uh, annual festal uh, letter that uh, would tell people when to celebrate Easter. Uh, he lists books that can be read, and they he called them canonical writings, and those are the ones he accepted as sacred scripture. And there were some books that could be read in private, and then some books that uh, should be rejected altogether. Uh, uh, who uh, began to say what could be read in churches? Well, initially, it was the local, the local leadership uh, in the local church. And uh, at the end of the second century uh, AD, uh, Serapion, a bishop uh, from uh, the, uh, I'll think of the name in a second, uh, Antioch. Uh, uh, yeah, he had to go to, yeah, he, he had to go to Rosas because there was a dispute in the church. Some Christians wanted the Gospel of Peter read in uh, the church, and some did not. And there was a struggle, so he went there and he said, look, if that's all there is that's going to cause a problem, let him read it. It's not a problem. Then he got back home and read it, and he thought it was heresy, so he said, don't read it. 
So, but it lets us know that initially local leadership decided what would be read, and it's generally whatever they possessed uh, in the churches. And uh, but bishops eventually began to take a prior role uh, in terms of what could be read in churches, and that's what you find in Athanasius. He makes that clear. The lectionaries we don't know altogether what was in them initially, but we do know that there were readings that were taking place in churches as long as time permitted. Uh, 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 Justin Martyr in the second century wrote his first apology, and in chapter 67 he indicates that uh, he, it, he gives the first uh, clear statement of what took place when Christians met, and then he mentions that the memoirs of the apostles, the gospels, were read as time permitted or the prophets. The gospels or the prophets, that the prophets was a reference to all of the Old Testament scriptures that uh, were in his possession. So those kinds of things varied for quite some period of time. And how we uh, uh, selected, we do know that there were uh, uh, lectionaries, portions of scriptures that were read. Uh, Luke 4, uh, 4 uh, verse 16 and following, Jesus is asked to read in uh, the synagogue in uh, uh, Nazareth. And uh, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah and he goes to the place and he cites a, a text of it. And then he gives us interpretation. They, it would have taken forever to read the whole scroll of Isaiah. So lectionaries were very common in the early churches. And that's not uncommon today. Uh, lectionaries are used and have been for centuries. Uh, you don't generally read the whole book of Deuteronomy. You take a section of it that is relevant to what the church's needs are, and you read that portion. So those kinds of things did take uh, did take place. And uh, I'm not sure if I've answered your question altogether, but there you go. Absolutely. I'll, 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 yeah. Very good. Um, so to close the loop about the biblical canon and its uh, sort of uh, formation beginning in the fourth century, before we move on to uh, uh, questions about your new book, um, you have written before about uh, lay people in the churches being surprised to learn uh, that the canon of the New Testament for uh, for the moment, uh, as we know, it doesn't come to a place uh, of modern recognition until the fourth century or later. So I'm just curious, could you uh, could you tell me what evidence from the various manuscripts we've recovered or patristic writings and list making leads you to this conclusion especially? Oh, sure. The manuscripts that uh, have survived, uh, they're called the papyrus manuscripts, they go from the second century up until the fourth century uh, uh, AD and uh, or CE. And those manuscripts uh, of all of the, there's 200 and uh, uh, about 270 of them right now that are possible, uh, uh, and there might be more, but only 14 have more than one book in them, <laughs> okay? And uh, most don't. And the, the, the larger one, you have P46, that has the Gospels and Acts uh, included in it. Uh, uh, P45, that uh, P46 is the letters of Paul, but it doesn't include the uh, pastoral epistles. So those kinds of things were there. The evidence that we have from the manuscripts uh, doesn't say that every church, every manuscript was just loaded with the uh, books of the Bible. There are very few. And of the uh, uh, first thousand years, 
only about 50 manuscripts of the Bible contain all of the books of the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Uh, most of them are very selective. Uh, but the evidence also includes the canon lists. In the fourth century, lists were being made sometimes by councils and sometimes by uh, church fathers like Athanasius. He says these books and not those books. And some could be read privately, but some he condemned. Uh, that kind of a thing lets us know not everybody agreed with his list. And uh, the uh, books for the Old Testament that uh, were being read or allowed to be read, what we now call deuterocanonical in the Catholic Church or apocryphal by the Protestants, not uh, those lists almost never agree with one another. And so you find variations. All of the councils that dealt with the issue of canon were local councils, and they didn't always agree with another council somewhere else. Uh, there's no ecumenical council. There were seven major ecumenical councils, and not one ever mentioned the scope of the Bible, and or even which scriptures that could be read in churches. Those are generally local decisions. But one other area that uh, is critically important is the the, the various translations in the early church. There's a dozen of them, and none of them have exactly the same books in them. So uh, that's the kind of a thing that gives us evidence that the issue wasn't settled for everybody at the same time. Were there those in the fourth century said, these books are no more? Absolutely. How come my list is different from his list off over there? Uh, that was the personal choices that people had. There's some books that uh, didn't appeal. Uh, the book of Hebrews didn't appeal to the churches in the West for centuries. By the end of the fourth century, they began to say, yeah, we'll read it. And uh, Origen, I loved what he said. He didn't know who wrote it, but uh, uh, he wasn't willing to throw it out. It had a powerful message, and the church eventually adopted that. The churches in the East welcomed it much sooner. So the churches in the East and the West didn't always agree on the scope of the New Testament or the Old Testament. Right on. Thank you, Lee, for uh, leading us in that direction. And uh, hopefully people, if uh, they have questions about uh, the formation of the canon, can uh, refer to uh, your many earlier works about this matter. Uh, could I just say something about the manuscripts? Uh, there's some uh, 4,750, and there'll be more, uh, manuscripts of books of the New Testament that have survived. No two are exactly alike. So which one is inspired by God? And the Greek New Testament that you make use of is what's called an eclectic text. There's not one manuscript in antiquity that looks exactly like the one that you study in seminary or in graduate school. And the same thing is true in the Old Testament. Uh, Emmanuel Tov who's uh, also a, a very wonderful friend. Uh, he and I gave lectures uh, on canon formation, and I mentioned uh, the 5,700 manuscripts, no two are exactly alike. He came up and said, Lee, there's over 9,000 Old Testament manuscripts, and no two are exactly alike. And I said, that should give us pause uh, when we try to make, gee, there's not a shade of difference between them, and everybody agreed on everything. No, no, they didn't, and to this day they don't. We have at least three, actually four different uh, Old Testament canons that exist in churches around the world today, and but most of the churches, the vast majority, agree on the 27 books of the New Testament. 
but not on the text of those books. Interesting. And yet we are thankful for the textual critics who work to compile these uh, massive texts that we, uh, you know, consider uh, inspired, I suppose, uh, because they are used to uh, make translations uh, in the present day of, uh, of the Bible into not only English, but all, all the languages of the world. Yeah, and there's no textual critic today, and uh, there's really about 50 textual critics in the world who uh, really... Uh, the world resonates around their work, and uh, uh, none of them say that we found the original yet. They're getting closer, and most of the variants or differences in the manuscripts can be uh, harmonized or uh, worked on. If 10 manuscripts said John Brown went to the store and another one, John Brown fell, uh, Brown fell on the floor, they generally go with the went to the store one. But uh, those kinds of things vary, and there's an intentional insertions into the biblical text. And uh, not all manuscripts have them. First uh, John 5, 7 and 8 uh, is called the Johannine comma. And then it speaks about three that bear record in heaven, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jehovah's Witnesses love to hear us try to defend that because it's not defensible. But uh, there's several manuscripts like that with variants that were intentionally made for theological purposes. And I could give you a list of those if you're interested, but uh, anyway, I, I may be pursuing that question longer than you want to go. Not a problem at all, Lee. It's uh, wonderful to uh, hear you talk about the years of expertise that you have cultivated. Uh, we could talk about the canon itself and why specific books are included and others are not. And, you know, I fully endorse projects like that, <laughs> I have to say. Uh, but we should probably turn to the authorities in the early church have, as your uh, subtitle to Before There Was a Bible has called them. Um, You've mentioned a little bit about what drew this your uh, interest in this direction, uh, but I was wondering uh, how long have you been planning to write a book like this, given your uh, previous work in uh, uh, the biblical canon? Well, interestingly, uh, I knew this subject matter uh, long before I put it in a book, but what prompted me to do it was I went to church and I visited purposefully high church, low church, uh, traditional uh, contemporary, and I noticed some things that uh, were very common in them. And nowadays, very few people carry their Bibles to the church because they got a pew Bible sitting in front of them and in, uh, uh, in the pews. But more often than not, the pastor will put the whole scriptural text up on a screen uh, and an overhead for uh, people to read. And I kept saying, gee, how is that unlike what the early church did? Most people didn't have a Bible. And so a scripture text was read to them. They didn't have an overhead or whatever. Uh, but uh, And how would the people's theology uh, be settled for the vast majority of the earliest Christians couldn't read? And, uh, and in my earlier journey of faith, I went to a church and there were people that couldn't read or write, but they had a Bible and they carried it to church every Sunday. And when the pastor would say, turn to the Gospel of John, such and such a text, they didn't have a clue what to do with that. But uh, the people's faith was uh, engendered through the preaching, uh, through the singing, the hymns of the church. This is one of those uncovered areas. Uh, the earliest church, uh, uh, the New Testament has a number of hymns that were sung, uh, and they generally focus upon God's uh, focus on God's activity in Christ and implications of that for Christian living. And when they'd have baptisms and uh, 
communion or the Eucharist, there were affirmations of faith on each of those events. So those people could actually say it. And eventually, by the 4th century, late 4th century, they had the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and they begin to, uh, uh, people uh, to this day, they'll all stand up and cite the Apostles' Creed in some of the churches that, that uh, still have those. But there are many of the people that, A, uh, don't know what it means, but it's a part of their faith foundation. And uh, if somebody said, well, you know, Jesus didn't really die on a cross, they say, oh, no, no, no. Whether they read or write, that was true in the early churches. Or if somebody came out and said something contrary to what they had been learning in their local churches, oh, there would be opposition. And there was opposition because there were heresies going on in the churches, the so-called heresies. Those terms are difficult to define because generally it meant if you disagree with me, you're a heretic. But uh, that's uh, uh, but uh, you might have had some nuances I hadn't considered. Go ahead. Um, sure. Let's uh, get into the nitty gritty, I suppose, of your of your book. Uh, in your introduction, you mentioned, for example, that um, the church began to spread around the Mediterranean before any of the uh, letters or books of the New Testament were even written. So we can say that Paul is a you know a, a missionary apostle uh, before he has even written his first letter, whether that's First uh, Thessalonians, as most agree, or some who say that Galatians would have been the first. But before that is written, around the year fifty, the church. St- still is uh, spreading. Um, and that uh, in this period as well, as far as we can tell, there's no standardized set of Hebrew scriptures, whether in their original language or in the Greek that the early church was uh, would have uh, known them in. So, the, But the church survived uh, through this time. So I'm curious, um, how standardized or normalized do you think these churches would have been? Not necessarily scripturally, but um, in terms of the way that they view Jesus and the apostles. And does that necessarily uh, ensure common agreement among all those churches? Well, uh, of course, if you're familiar with early church history, you know in advance they didn't all agree on how to interpret different aspects of the life of Jesus, the identity of Jesus. Was he a spirit? Was he a, uh, a person who resembled but uh, a human being but really wasn't? And those, those questions uh, went on in churches for quite some time. Uh, most agreed that Jesus had a special relationship with God that others don't have, and that he was central to the salvation that God wanted to bring to the people, however they articulated it. They didn't always articulate baptism the same way, or even the understanding of communion or the Eucharist the same way, uh, nor did they celebrate it the same way, even when they understood it the same way. So there were variations in the churches for centuries, and uh, uh, fortunately that was all completed by the end of the fourth century, and we haven't had any church controversy since. That's a joke, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, uh, it's amazing when I study historical Jesus stuff today, and I hear stuff that's going on, uh, Bart Ehrman on one side, and uh, uh, who's pretty much hung up uh, his spurs in terms of uh, Christian faith, but. Uh, then you find some very narrow fundamentalist uh, person on the other side, and they're all talking about the same scriptures and coming up with totally different conclusions. That happened in antiquity and throughout church history. There were some core things that said, this is what it means to be a Christian, and, uh, but there's, there are very few 
and those were celebrated in the Eucharist and the baptisms and the singing of the uh, the early hymns. But if somebody is strayed too far from that, they say, no, we're not going to use that hymn. It doesn't affirm who Jesus was or what he did or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Studying church history is uh, is fun, and when you are with a body of students and can show how all the splinter groups have diverged from the Protestant Reformation onward, they uh, they you know they remark that uh, church history is just a history of division uh, and disagreement uh, with with one another. Uh, and, and and you're saying that that's happening in the earliest days as well. Sure, I often tell people uh, they know that I have a Baptist background, and I said we're the oldest church. Uh, We don't go back to Jesus or John the Baptist. We go back to Abraham when he said to Lot, you go your way and I'll go mine. Uh, Anyway, uh, uh, and I sometimes share with folks when I've been in a Catholic setting, I said, I want to prove to you that they were uh, Baptists way back in the fourth century. When this canon list was made up by a church council, there were churches in that very area that said, go jump in the lake. They wouldn't do it. So there's proof that there were Baptists back. Anyway, I'm being silly. I'm, be, I'm being silly, of course. But uh, uh, to say that the church has always been unanimous about everything, uh, that's an overstatement. Uh, I, I've had professors that I loved dearly and learned a lot from them, and we are miles apart theologically. But we all, and interestingly, we all went to church. Uh, Helmut Kester, uh, a wonderful, wonderful person. And uh, uh, he, uh, he and I were miles apart on Christology, uh, who Jesus was, and so on. But I learned a great deal from him, and he was very good to me. So uh, I think uh, when the church uh, is at its best, it finds room for some differences of opinion and allows others to say, uh, you know, while I disagree with you, I respect your right to say what you say. And and uh, the early churches were very much like that as well. But some of them just couldn't stand each other, and they went in different directions. So we have Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian. Anyway, you know, we have all of that. <laughs> So throughout church history, there's a parting of the ways, and that also relates back to uh, the way that Christianity is said to diverge from uh, Judaism. And you end uh, your first chapter talking about a so- the, that so-called parting of the ways uh, and the rhetoric of division that is used on both sides from uh, rabbinic Jews and also from uh, early Christians who were uh, who were writing. But uh, along with this, you also describe how both groups uh, – coincidentally or inadvertently begin adding new authoritative scriptures to their received writings, the first Christian scriptures, as you say. Um, Can you say more about the development uh, and the move to add to the scriptures? Um, Was this a matter of both essentially updating their uh, traditions beyond the Hebrew Bible or Septuagint, uh, adding more sources of authority, if you will? Sure. The, uh, the, uh, Jews of the first century were locked into the law and the sacrifices in the time of Jesus. That was before the temple was destroyed. And much of the Old Testament writings have to do with agrarian people and not people that live in the city dwellings. So there was always uh, interpretation, hermeneutics going on to make the, the scriptures relevant to the people. But it was also seen that there's some other things that we need to understand. And you see those developing in the Jews 
uh, in the, the Hillel and uh, Shammai traditions in the first century Jewish uh, rabbis. And uh, the, uh, uh, what's called the oral traditions of the Hebrew community, those were eventually written down and uh, put into what's called the Mishnah, 63 tractates, and deals with a whole host of things that were relevant to the people in the uh, uh, first and second century. And almost as soon as that was codified in the early third century, 200 to 220, uh, they began to have uh, interpretations of it. That's called Gemara. And you have the Babylonian tradition and the Yerushalmi or the Jerusalem tradition, much larger books. And then they add scripture verses to interpret them. And the Mishnah became, it wasn't, it, they never call it scripture, and they don't inc uh, expand their uh, Hebrew Bible, but uh, they function just like that. The early Christians found that the Jewish writings were very helpful, but sometimes they couldn't get a clear statement, and they found that the writings uh, that they themselves produced, especially the Gospel of Matthew, that was the most popular gospel, uh, uh, was cited more than any other book because it told the story of Jesus. And the, the Gospel of John was similar to it uh, later on. Uh, the Christians didn't start off saying, let's write a New Testament. Uh, that just developed from the use of Christian literature. And the church has said, wow, this is valuable stuff. And if Paul said it, it must be so. Or if Matthew said it, it must be so. And that's where you have use always comes before designation. They used these uh, the Gospels, but uh, they eventually were identified both by name and then called Scripture. And uh, that's by the end of the second century, they start to be identified by name. It's interesting that uh, uh, authorship was not a key factor in the earliest churches. All four Gospels, the Book of Acts, the Book of Hebrews, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are anonymous. Later on, names were attached to those when authorship became a major issue in the 4th century church, and especially uh, with Augustine, who he couldn't accept any book that if he didn't know for sure who the author was, and the author had to be apostolic. I don't know if that makes sense, but... Yes, absolutely. Um, it, it seems natural, as you say, that uh, the use precedes uh, designation, and use uh, oftentimes precedes uh, um, decisions about authorship or strenuous arguments for authorship. Um, on a related front, uh, you mention in the next few chapters, I think two, three, and four, that there uh, exists or uh, uh, there comes to exist a vacuum of authority around the late first century when the uh, expected imminent uh, return of Jesus hasn't transpired, his disciples have passed away, Christians are dying in local persecutions in some cases, and uh, the initial apocalyptic spirit of the earliest uh, Christians um, evolves or uh, changes into new expressions of, uh, of uh, realized eschatology or salvation in the present age and other sorts of formulations of the Christian message, uh, even those that would later be called heretical. Um, Christians apparently, as, as we have uh, mentioned, adopted quite 
divergent beliefs uh, in this period, in the second century, when uh, many traditions were somewhat malleable, not only the scriptures themselves, which could, uh, you know, be uh, changed from copy to copy, as we've mentioned, but uh, uh, even more core traditions as well. Can you elaborate for us on how you see this uh, vacuum of authority or this chaotic period begin to normalize with uh, the growth of the bishop, the emerging stability of, of texts that would later become part of the New Testament and uh, heresiology as a discourse that ruled on what was normative and what was not? Oh, excellent question. The uh, uh, tough times are always the context for tough leaders. And uh, as the church is going through difficulty, Jesus hasn't returned. And there's mocking of that going on even in, like in Second Peter that I think is a second century uh, text. But uh, uh, the notion of the bishop begins to take on a new role. And how do you deal with churches that are going through conflict? You need somebody to stand up and speak up and say, here's what we do if you're going to salvage the church and its future. And so the role of the bishop begins to be more and more uh, powerful. And Ignatius writings, he says that the bishop is the same as Christ uh, on earth. So you got to follow the bishop. Not everybody followed the bishops that were there. And sometimes uh, you'd find like in uh, uh, first Clement, uh, Clement of Rome, uh, he's trying to deal with the issue where the people got rid of their local leaders and their churches, and he's trying to get them reinstated. But uh, by and large, that's, uh, that's an issue. Uh, Ignatius and Irenaeus. Irenaeus makes the point that if the apostles were going to transmit the core elements of the Christian faith uh, to people in the church, who would they give it to? Would it be to the leaders of the church, namely the bishops? Of course they would have. That was his point. And he makes a very good argument. Uh, why would they give it to Bolivar Shagnasty if uh, Bolivar wasn't a bishop or a, a key leader in the church? And not all of those were bishops, but some of them were strong teachers. And those were the ones that... Uh, eventually carried the day for uh, what would be taking place. Uh, there was a vacuum of authority, and when Jesus hadn't returned, how do we articulate faith in a way that's meaningful uh, to the people that were so looking forward to Jesus coming again? And uh, the apostles are all gone. We used to have this voice, an oral uh, word from the apostles themselves. Now they're gone. And... Uh, and so you would have bishops saying, I learned from this apostle before he died, uh, Melito and uh, uh, Papias and so on, others that remembered the oral tradition uh, going on in the church. So uh, the church began to uh, deal with something, and it took strong leaders. The problem with strong leaders is once the problem is gone, the strong leaders aren't. And... <laughs> and uh, they just don't want to get out of the way. I know this is so rare to think that somebody who has a great deal of authority would love to give it up. But uh, those kinds of things continued on and the role of the bishop became stronger and the authoritarian role of the church and several churches where one bishop would oversee a whole area or a region. Uh, and then of course you have archbishops and cardinals and what have you else, that's much later. Uh, in, uh, in the church's development. But uh, uh, the church responded, not just with bishops, but with a Christian scripture 
and eventually a biblical canon. Those were the primary uh, emergences uh, that took place in the churches. Uh, if you have a core collection of teachings, even if you don't have a bishop handy that you can call on, gee, Paul said this, therefore it must, uh, we need to cohere with what Paul said or Matthew or John or Luke or Mark uh, at all. And this idea, especially of apostolic succession, that uh, we see argued strenuously for the first time in Irenaeus, as you said, but also exists in sort of inchoate form in First Clement. Um, it becomes a very prominent logic that fuels the institution of the church uh, for uh, even down to today, when uh, uh, when we are still uh, recognizing the uh, primacy of of the Roman bishop as pope, right? Yeah. Sure. Well, uh, there are some churches that don't have bishops, but they have people that act like them, and <laughs> they're called executive ministers or whatever. And uh, I say, why not just use what the church used? They called him a bishop, an overseer, a ruler. That's what the term means, and uh, episcopos. And, uh, uh, but uh, uh, churches need strong leaders from time to time, and uh, hopefully— uh, we're blessed if somebody can stand in those places with wisdom and guidance and direction. So, um, One of the authorities that you mention is uh, that of uh, lectionaries. And you have also written uh, many times before that uh, the scriptures that were read in churches would have uh, possessed a natural and perhaps unquestioned uh, authority for the people that heard them. I'm curious, um, when does the use of lectionaries arise? What kind of evidence do we have for them? And also, sort of as a related question to this, what do we know from the early churches about the reading of scriptures in worship services? Um, if, if I may give a, a brief example, in the third and fourth centuries, uh, would they have followed a liturgy or were they just reading whatever the readers possessed and were bringing with them to the service? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And as I shared with the story of Serapion, uh, who was the bishop in Antioch, uh, uh, he gave guidance to the church on what they could read. But initially, it was done by the local leaders of the church. That begins to grow and uh, develop. Uh, by the fourth century, it's fairly common for the bishop to tell people what they should read. And Athanasius says, these books you can read, Old and New Testament books, and uh, these could be read privately because they have some spiritual value in them. And uh, the rest of these you should avoid altogether. Uh, not everybody followed what the bishop had to say. And as late as the ninth century, and what's called a, a stichometry, that's the uh, numbering of uh, lines in a, in a particular writing, the stichometry, uh, stichometry of Nicephorus, it's dated 850, but it's probably a little earlier there. They list all of the books that you can and all of the books that you can't read. And uh, Nicephorus was a key leader. Uh, so people made those decisions. But right from the beginning, the church read, uh, uh, even if they had a whole book of, say, Isaiah, they would never read that on a Sunday morning from cover to cover. Uh, uh, that kind of a thing. There were always lections. And the evidence that we have, there's more copies of lectionaries than there are books in the Bible that have survived. Hmm. And that gives us a clue of what books were most influential in the lives of the early Christians. And the lectionaries in the East were not always the same as those in the West. 
and generally it was a local bishop that would give uh, guidance in that area, but sometimes when it was a bishop over the other local bishops who would say these books and not those books, but uh, take your snippets out of each of these. Uh, there's a terrific uh, uh, article, and I'll think of the guy's name, uh, Samuel is a part of his name. Anyhow, uh, he said uh, the Orthodox Christians never had a whole Bible. They had lectionaries, uh, lections that were read to them, and they got their understanding of Scripture from those lections. So if you want to find out what the Orthodox Christians believed about uh, what Scriptures are authoritative, Look at the lections and you'll get a get an idea. The same thing is true with the translations uh, that are found in local churches. Those are the books. Very few of the ancient translations carried all four Gospels. Uh, most of them would have Matthew and sometimes another one. Uh, but that gives you a clue where the priority was. And they didn't always have all of the books of Paul, but some would have three or four of Paul's books and some would have six or seven seldom did you get 13. and as you say in your book there's probably more research to be done on the lectionaries uh, uh driving forward the uh, idea of authorities that were existed in early christianity yeah yeah absolutely one uh, sort of final question that comes to mind about uh, the book is about uh, the notion of textual fluidity in the churches, because even when churches would have agreed on the same book, such as uh, Matthew, which you rightly say is probably the most prominent of the Gospels, they may actually have been reading different versions of that same book. Um, uh, early Christians were not, by and large, textual sleuths like uh, textual critics are today with our critical editions. Instead, they used whatever scriptures they had access to, and these might have included omissions, additions, accidental changes that occur in the process of copying by hand, and so on. Um, how do you see a situation of multiple conceptions of scripture and authority developing into the canon that becomes more or less fixed? And do all roads necessarily lead us to the uh, canon of, for example, 27 New Testament books that we eventually got to? Oh, well, that's that's quite a question. The uh, uh, the uh, use of the books was the primary uh, criterion for the, its acceptance. Now, the, uh, while we have agreement on most of the books of the New Testament by the end of the fourth century, we don't have agreement on the text, and there were certain textual insertions. And sometimes a rewriting of the text, almost every scribe that would write, he'd say, and Bart Ehrman was pretty good on this one. Uh, I didn't like all of his conclusions, but he said, in other words. So a person said, gee, I, my people won't understand this word, but let me put in a word that they would that I think clarifies it. The overwhelming majority of the insertions were there for clarification around the the uh, Orthodox traditions, the very few exceptions to that. But uh, so there was a feeling that I can change the biblical text to make it clear to my people. Pastors do that every Sunday morning in their sermons. Uh, they say, well, now the Greek says this, and that's what it means, and I hate to, I, I get bored with pastors who always have to use the Greek. But uh, I said, uh, uh, just say the original text says this, but here's what it really meant in that context. That's translation, and those uh, translations come out in uh, all of the manuscripts that we have. 
in other words. And uh, Bart Ehrman used that in other words, and I like that because he was right. Uh, they didn't hesitate to change it. This is a sacred biblical text, but my people won't understand it. And every pastor does that every Sunday morning anyway. So I don't know if that makes it makes it clear, but the use of a text led to its recognition. And even uh, in the fifth century, uh, Augustine said, if you're unclear on which books to read, and Origen said it in the third uh, uh, century also, but uh, Origen, or rather uh, Augustine said it more clearly. He said, if you have any doubts, go with the books that are read by most of the people. And, uh, and so widespread use, it's called Catholicity, uh, widespread use in the churches was primary. Eventually, uh, authorship became a primary criterion also. And, uh, but, and that's why I think some names were attached to writings, like Paul's name was attached to Hebrews, to make sure it would get accepted. But the Hebrews circulated by itself anonymously for quite some time before that. But uh, when authorship became a key issue, it began to be that way in the second century. And that's when you start finding all kinds of writings, what we call pseudonymous, falsely written in another person's name. They begin to appear about uh, 150, 160 AD. And uh, eventually most of those are dismissed by the church based on the issue of false authorship. But there are some writings that had a terrific message and we don't know who wrote them, but they've been around for a while and they have blessed the church and uh, blessed me and I just can't give them up. Uh, uh, Lauren Stuckenbrook uh, came up with a wonderful statement about apocryphal writings and he said some develop an irresistible momentum. And whenever there was doubts about its authorship, hey, we're not going to get rid of First, Second uh, Timothy. And uh, uh, we even like Titus. And it's got a powerful message that is relevant for the church today. It was used for quite some period of time. Authorship was not initially a question, but it had gained uh, irresistible momentum and it remained in the uh, the biblical text. Same thing would be true for Second Peter. Uh, it's different, and most people now date it in the second century, And uh, but it has a coherence with the basic core message of early Christianity that was looking for uh, an apocalyptic understanding, the return of Christ, and so on. So you are ultimately willing to say that there are pseudonymous uh, books that have made it into the New Testament? I am. Uh, and uh, Second Peter is is certainly a prime one for me, but I think as they're currently written, it's interesting, there's some new stuff coming out on the pastoral epistles. I don't think Paul wrote them as they currently are, but I think some traditions in them are probably authentically Paul. And uh, you're aware that everybody in Asia Minor have turned against me. That's a historical statement. It's probably true. Uh, but uh, the basic core teachings of Paul are not in them, justification by faith and the role of the Spirit and the more simple uh, context of the early church. Those are the kinds of things that I said uh, lead me to say I don't think so. And there's a number of things that I think suggest that in their current form, they emerge in the middle of the second century. But having said that, the early church thought there was enough core teaching in it that reflected what they thought Paul 
might have thought that they included that, and so they attributed it to Paul. There's all kinds of reasons for why that material would emerge. I don't think all of it was uh, uh, forged with ill uh, intent. I think it was written in another person's name with good intent, sometimes to praise the person in whose name it was, but uh, that's that's where Ehrman and I have differences. But Sure, sure. You've mentioned Ehrman a couple of times. I believe earlier in your response, you were referring to his uh, Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, published in the early 90s, back when I was a wee lad. <laughs> ah, yeah. And uh, Forged is another one of them. Forged. And, and, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. I still see him as a young man because he's, I'm much older than he is. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't force you to give away how many birthdays you've uh, gone through. Uh, yeah. Um, there you go. Um, as we look to wrap up here, I want to give you the chance to kind of uh, differentiate yourself within uh, the range of canonical scholarship, because uh, in this book and in your other works as well, you're occasionally uh, critical of more conservative or more evangelical scholars who uh, think the canon formed earlier than you do, or who think that specific uh, decisions to exclude non-canonical books like The Shepherd of Hermas occurred much earlier than the 4th century, and these uh, scholars tend to uh, view the Muratorian Fragment, as we mentioned earlier, uh, as a piece of evidence that dates to the uh, late 2nd century. Um, are there any specific critiques that you anticipate from other scholars to this uh, new book before there was a Bible, whether from those uh, conservative evangelicals or from you know anybody else in the guild? And how, how might you respond to any of those critiques? Well, the majority of the evangelical scholars, and you mentioned, uh, you know, Kruger and uh, uh, Eckhard Schnabel, and I know all of them very well, and uh, Charles Hill, uh, they would disagree with how I date uh, some of the books and the canon formation. They want to put it much earlier in the second century. I don't. There's a growing number of people now, biblical scholars, who are uh, aligning with my own thinking on this. And I had a debate with this with uh, Bruce Metzger years ago. We had a plenary session at the Society of Biblical Literature, and and he was very affirming of what I was trying to say, and he understood some of the, the challenges on dating the Muratorian Fragment. That's the Achilles heel of canon formation today. Uh, and I, I've said it, if you, if you date it in the second century, then you say everybody in the second century held to this view. Show me the evidence of anything that everybody said in the one person said in the second century. You mentioned already Irenaeus. Did everybody agree with Irenaeus? No, no not at all. And uh, there was no uniformity. But you start seeing uh, a larger gathering by the end of the fourth century where all, almost all of the canon lists are emerging in the fourth century, middle of the fourth century and later. And uh, up through the 7th, 8th, ninth century, uh, there, there's quite a few. So uh, I, there are scholars that somehow, and I don't understand it, feel that we really just have to make sure the New Testament was over by the end of the 2nd century. I would say most of the books of the New Testament were welcome to Scripture, but not all of the churches accepted all of those same books. And uh, some did, but some didn't. And uh, one of the fallacies of uh, biblical scholarship and canon formation is they they sometimes make an assumption that if one person said it in this part of the empire, then 
everybody else said the same thing and the other, and there's no evidence. Uh, interestingly, a person that uh, I have critiqued over the years, and we were on opposite sides of the page, uh, Reverend Childs, a marvelous scholar from Yale, uh, he agreed with me on that. Well, I would say he and I both said the same thing at about the same time. Be careful. And uh, uh, there, uh, there's another person whose name is going to swim by. I'll call you at three in the morning when I get it. But, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll edit it in thing. if we can. <laughs> yeah, but, but those are the kinds of things that uh, I think uh, people uh, typically uh, want to find everything we have now much earlier uh, in the church than what it actually uh, developed. I don't know of anything theological that would say we needed to have, and it's better to have a second century New Testament canon uh, than a fourth century New Testament canon, or a fifth or sixth or seventh. Uh, I, I just don't know of any arguments that would uh, legitimize that. So I, I interact with some several of these uh, people on a regular basis, and I'm going to, in a few weeks, I'm going to Vienna for the SNTS meetings, and there's a couple of folks, we just disagree fundamentally, but I know that I'm right. No. <laughs> so, well, I know that you are too. <laughs> no, there you go. Um, uh, Lee, what was the most surprising part of uh, the research writing process for this? And is there one thing that you want uh, listeners to uh, take away from, uh, from the work that you put in for before there was a Bible? Well, uh, I think uh, the presence of anachronistic thinking is very present, not just with evangelicals, but also with the more liberal uh, persons. We kind of like to think of what we're thinking of now was also being thought of way back then. And uh, there's certain words that uh, scholars have uh, tried to debunk because they are loaded uh, terms, pseudepigraphal, pseudonymous, uh, uh, canonical, deuterocanonical, all of those are later development terms. And uh, how canon is used, uh, that's all later developments. Let's be careful about uh, thinking that everything that we think of today was true in the earliest levels of the church. Uh, that's the kind of a thing that I've challenged over the years. And if you challenge something that everybody believes, then they just can't stand you anymore. Anyhow, so... <laughs> So I have I have some fun with that. So well, somehow you have uh, been welcomed within the halls of academy and the different societies uh, in in the in the guild of biblical studies uh, for all of your years, and uh, it's uh, been a tremendous uh, career in scholarship for you. Um, as we mentioned earlier, we you've written volumes and volumes on the biblical canon, and now on pre-canonical Christianity as well. So, uh, what what will we be looking for uh, forward to uh, next from you? What are you working on next? Well, thank you for asking. I'm taking a a, a nitty gritty problem that the church historically has never fully uh, identified or clarified or defined, and it's called inspiration. And the role of the Holy Spirit has, and maybe it's because of the nature of the role of the Holy Spirit, it's the holy breath uh, uh, that uh, I'm giving a, a leading paper on it in Bonn, Germany at the university in October. And uh, I'm dealing with uh, the basic understanding of inspiration is a belief that God is in, uh, God inspires, God breathed. Uh, Genesis 2-7, God breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. 
Second uh, Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by God's breath. Uh, God breathed into it, inspired. So the notion of inspiration is simply a notion that God is actively involved in humanity's uh, uh, concerns in life. And it deals not only with scripture, but also with the, the oral uh, proclamations. Uh, uh, all of the, uh, uh, the church councils that met always said that they were led by the spirit and all of the decisions that they made. Uh, what does all of this stuff mean? And I'm going to just do my very best to give the final word on it so there won't be need for anything else to be written on it. No, that's a, that's a, that's a joke. But I'm, I'm focused on, on, on uh, inspiration in uh, Judaism and early Christianity, but also in, uh, in the Greek uh, culture uh, uh, at uh, Delphi, which you may be familiar with. And they had these uh, uh, mania uh, uh, women who were inspired by God. They spoke over these gaseous flumes that came up. And, and so then there were prophets that interpreted them. Well, that's in the Greek con uh, uh, culture. I'm looking at that stuff as well and trying to tie in together. What is it that we're talking about when we say God inspired, God breathed, and that's the Second Timothy 3.16 text that doesn't talk about inerrancy. It talks about God breathed, and it's valuable for instruction and righteousness and proper living. So, uh, so I'll be doing that, and we'll see what comes of it. Well, wonderful. We expect it to be an inspired word from you uh, for our uh, European listeners who may want to join you in uh, join you in Bonn, Germany, and hopefully it'll be published after uh, your talk as well. Thank you, Lee. Brill, uh, Brill, Brill books are going to publish all of the papers, so. Wonderful. Should be fun. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Lee, uh, we thank you so much for your time today, for your dedication to biblical scholarship, and for being our guest on the New Books Network. Thank you um, again, very much. Again, Lee Martin McDonald's latest book is called Before There Was a Bible Authorities in Early Christianity. It's available now from Bloomsbury TT Clark, wherever quality books are sold, published this year in 2023. I'm Rob Heaton, uh, your host in New Testament and Early Christian Studies for New Books and Religion, and I will be with you again on your next download. Bye bye.